0: Good morning. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. I feel very weak this morning, and that makes me happy. Because when we are weak, he is strong, and he is faithful. So I receive Austin's prayer and your prayers for me, and I would ask that you would pray for me that God would be strong and glorious by his Holy Spirit to glorify and lift up his son Jesus as I preach. Would he give us, Lord, would you give us listening ears and soft hearts? Would you come and meet with us and would we be changed as we meet with you face to face through Jesus Christ? Y'all, this morning, as Austin said, we're landing the plane. I hope I can stick it. I mean, the Lord's gonna be faithful. <clears throat> um, we're finishing our Exodus journey. It's been a wilderness wandering, as you know, out as God's people, as he's taken them out of slavery, out of the iron furnace, into this desert land as they head to, toward the land of promise. And, and here we are at the last chapter of Exodus. We get all these tabernacle uh, architectural specifications, and then the glory comes. I want to say, no surprise, three points this morning as we look at this, what I am titling a glorious, might surprise you, bit of a provocative title, disappointment, a glorious disappointment, yet it is quite glorious. Point one, this is more than a new building, okay? You might have just been going, oh, i almost falling asleep until verse 34, whatever it is, where God's glory comes, but it is God's word, it's perfect, it's here for a reason. And I think it might surprise you to see, and I hope I can make this case briefly. This is more than a building, this tabernacle, this meeting place, this tent that God has specified for his people to make, that they, the sinful people of God, might be with the perfect, almighty, merciful, compassionate, uncreated creator at peace without dying. This is this house of peace, where God is able to meet with the sinful people in the wilderness, it's a tent. And why is that important? Why is it important that it's a fold-up tent in this context? And not a structure that's concrete rooted with a foundation like the later temple. Yeah, because they're in the wilderness and they're wandering around for 40 years because of disobedience. And so still he is with them. But this is more than a building, point one. It's a new creation. I want to give you a few, I want to back that up with a a few pieces of evidence here if I can. Um, If you look at verse two, I have verse 2 here but I'm not sure that that's true. It might be verse 12. Yep. Um, it says what? What does verse 2 say? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, "On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Have it all ready and put it up on the first day of the first month. It's year 2 that they've been at Sinai. It's year 2 they've been there for a year and at the very beginning of year 2 he says, "Make sure it's on this day and do it. It's a new beginning." It's like day one of a new creation. Also, this takes a bit of looking at more tabernacle specifications elsewhere and also temple specifications when Solomon builds his temple in Kings and Chronicles. If you want to go and look there later, just take my word for it now. Um, scholars, Jewish and Christian throughout the centuries are in large agreement. This has a lot of cosmological Sort of components to it: um, the tabernacle, the temple. It's a mini cosmos. So let me give you some points of um, verification. There, there's garden imagery, not so much in this text, but in the in the temple text especially. Um, throughout the structure, there are pomegranates. There are purple or blue pomegranates on the robes of all the priests, they're, and they're all throughout the building too. Pomegranates, so that's garden fruit. Palm trees, flowers, all sorts of flowers, lilies, and other things. Fragrances, incense, great sort of smells, odors. Um, it's a place, what? The tabernacle in the midst of the wilderness, the temple later, where God walks with his people. Okay, just like in the garden. Um, there's an, the, the altar is actually elsewhere called an earthen altar. It's known as the earth, as it were. The, the place for washing the laver, okay? It's called the sea. There's an earth, there's a sea, And then there's a sky. Once you enter, those are in the temple precincts outside in the courtyard. And once you go into the temple, what are the colors that are used? All the tapestries and stuff are to be a specific color, crimson, purple, blue. Everything is gilded. Everything is gold. It's the color of the heavens. It's the sky. It's the heavens itself. It's the heavenlies. And then you have the lamps that are constantly on, the lamps for light, as if they are the stars. So you have the earth, you have the The sea, you have the sky and the heavens. Um, Also, another bit, Moses built this new cosmos, this new universe, according to God's word. And verse 33 says, Moses finished the work. Okay, what does Genesis two, verse two say? After God in Genesis one has spoken all creation into being, it says, and God finished the work he had done. Same Hebrew verb. This is a deliberate, we think, echo by Moses, who also wrote, he wrote Exodus, but he also wrote Genesis, excuse me. Um, it's a deliberate echo here of the fact that God is, he's creating through this people, he's a, it's a do-over. Because Adam and Eve and their progeny have ruined creation and severed the relationship with God through their sin. God is starting a new creation through his people, you see? Um, it also, as I said, prefigures the later temple, Solomon's temple in First Kings. It took seven years to build. The Feast of Dedication, where they dedicate the temple, takes seven days, 2 Chronicles 7, if you want to read about that later. Um, Christian and Jewish scholars agree, again, that this is a deliberate echo of the seven days, six plus one of creation. Um, Another bit, Genesis 2.15, so back to Genesis in the garden. God makes all things, and then he makes Adam and Eve as the crown of his creation. As it were, be the priests in my temple. And what does he say? God placed Adam and Eve in the garden to work and keep it. These two verbs are also used in the New Testament of the priests to describe their work in the tabernacle. They should work, same Hebrew verbs, they should work and keep it. Um, They're commanded to work and keep it. So again, what is happening? Israel is a corporate Adam. Um, She's placed, this people is going to be, they have made, we have made of, of, because of our sin, through our sin, a house of slavery, That's our condition and a wilderness, a desert wilderness of God's garden creation. Rather than making of creation a garden, because of our sin, we've done the opposite. Inside and out, things are an absolute wreck. But through his people, he's gonna walk them, he's gonna deliver them, walk them through the wilderness and place them in a garden land to walk with him, to obey his word that he's given them, just like he gave Adam and Eve and then to kick the enemy out of the land, just like he told Adam and Eve to do, okay? By obeying his commands. Um, God is starting over through Israel. He's making a universe where he and his people can be together in a fruitful relationship. Um, that's, that's the cool, amazing thing God's doing through this architectural language that just seems like it's about a building, but it's about so much more. God is about renewing the cosmos. Now the bad news, there's always bad news in a good story, and there's always bad news in a sermon that I preach because there's bad news in every text that leads us to the good news. The bad news, point two, is it's not enough. Okay, I was scrolling for a movie with a disappointing ending. Okay, I've called this sermon the glorious disappointment. So I was scrolling uh, for a movie with a disappointing ending, and I I lighted on a website, top 10 worst movie endings. With a bit of trepidation, I clicked on it. Most of them I'd never heard of, but one of them I had, and unfortunately, I have seen this movie. I would plead with you, do not watch it. If you value redeeming the time of your life, the short life that God has given to you on this earth, please do not waste two hours of it by watching this movie. I'm a huge fan of the series though, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It was good. Those first two words were good, weren't they? Indiana Jones, love it. My kids will not be, they will be seeing the first three. They will not be seeing this one, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. This was just a clear sort of man, we nailed it three times, let's do it again. And if, if, if uh, Harrison Ford ever showed his career to be on the wane, it was in this, it was in this sucker. Um, it ends, it, the whole thing is pretty poor, but the ending, you know, if you have a good ending, you can really redeem. Bad sermon, nice ending. It's like, okay, I, the people hopefully just remember the ending and uh, we win. It's, it's a chalk it up to a win. This is one of the worst endings I've ever seen. The wheels just completely come off, all four of them on the wagon. They end with, uh, they're in this pallet, this sort of ancient, Uh, ruin and aliens pop up. And uh, literally the website says, literal aliens, exclamation point. It calls this the crowning jewel of disappointment. Our text uh, here in Exodus 40 is an amazing episode. It really is an amazing episode where God's glory comes. But if we look closely at the text and we zoom out to look at the larger first chunk of scripture called the Torah, or the, some people call it the law, but it, Torah better translates as the teaching, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then we zoom out from there and look at the whole Old Testament. Each time what we have is a disappointing ending. Let me, let me explain that. Um, God saves his people. He brings them out of the iron furnace. This is the whole book of Exodus, right? And really Genesis to Exodus. He gives them laws to live by as a people. He guides them through the wilderness, And then this ending, verse 35, what happens? What happens in verse 35? God's glory comes and Moses, the man, the interceder, inter, yeah, the interceder for his people. Intercessor, I think is the word that I was looking for. The man, the guy that pictures Christ for us. He can't go in to be with God in his presence. He cannot enter. That is a downer. Um, let me kind of give some bit of background here and some more, some more info instead of just hanging on that. Um, there are detailed tabernacle instructions for about five chapters that precede this. Um, okay, there's, there's a covenant, what scholars refer to as a covenant code, the 10 commandments, which I think Justin preached wonderfully on a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago or so. Um, simple, profound, profound, wonderful 10 words that God gives. And then there's some laws afterwards, just a few laws afterwards that God gives. That's known as the covenant code. Then what happens in Genesis 32? I think I got, that was my first sermon back. Thanks a lot, guys. Uh, whoever assigned me to that, right? My first sermon back was Genesis 32 and what, ha- Exodus 32, see? Exodus 32 and what happens in Exodus 32? It's the big no-no, it's the golden calf. Moses is up there getting all these wonderful instructions from God. And before he can even come down, the people are starting to worship. They're breaking the first commandment. They're having other gods before them. They're making idols commandment too as well. They break it. Um, after that, what we get is these tabernacle instructions. And then we get this episode. And then we have the book of Leviticus. This, the book of Leviticus is where it's, it's known as the, uh, the, the wasteland of yearly Bible readings. It's, you read, you're pumped up in January and, 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 and uh, February and you read Genesis and Exodus and then you get to Leviticus and Leviticus is like this chapter, uh, the entire book. It's just all these detailed instructions about priests and washings and disease and the tabernacle and on and on and on it goes. It's called the Levitical code. And then after that, and in the midst of that, you get the holiness code, tons, tons more laws. Okay. Why am I saying all this? Your, your head's spinning. Why am I saying all this? Well, I'm saying all this because there's a pattern here. Why do we go from a simple covenant code to a more complex Leviticus priestly code, okay, and then to a holiness code that involves all these intricacies that need to be followed exactly? In sim- simply and in short, because bad kids get more rules. Okay, now let me explain that. Bad kids get more rules, okay? Okay. Um, John Salehammer says this, he's a Hebrew, was a Hebrew, he's still, but he's in glory right now, waiting for a new body. Um, The more complex codes that stretch from the golden calf incident in Exodus 32 through Exodus and Leviticus to the priestly and holiness codes, quote, show what further efforts were necessary to ensure that the whole of the nation, not merely the priests, be kept from idolatry and apostasy. Think about it again with kids. Um, Bad kids get more rules. And the kids think that the parents are being mean, but the parents are loving the children and knowing that that kid needs more rules because that kid can't handle what? Freedom. You're giving those rules so that kid doesn't die or hurt himself or herself, right? Freedom for a bad kid ruins the kid. Ruins the kid. Um, and so a loving parent's going to give more rules, but it's a sign of, that, of the corruption. That's, I think, what we're seeing here. We go from, let me give you another, another point of evidence, from people seeing the mountain in Exodus 20, right before the laws. They see the mountain, they hear God, they even feast with God. They have a meal with God. The 70 elders represent the people and go up and it says they have a meal with him and they, it even says they see him. They see him face to face, as it were. Um, okay, they go from that to not even wanting to hear his voice. And from saying, Moses, you go up. We, we can't see him and we don't want to hear him. You just tell us. And then Moses comes down and his face is shining with the effulgence of the glory of God. And that's what, that's what they're getting now of the glory of God. Secondary and what? Fading and, and veiled. They're not, they're not interested in the sun anymore. They're content with the moon, the reflected glory. Okay. Um, So the people fear God when they hear his voice. Does that remind you of anything going back to creation, going back to garden as we harp on this theme? Does does the people fearing the voice of God remind you of anything? Of course it does. It reminds you of Genesis 3, right? The first thing almost that happens in Genesis 3 when when Adam and Eve sin and disobey God in Genesis verses uh, 3, 8, and 10 When God comes walking, what do they do? Instead of going out and saying, oh, the lover of our souls, our maker, the one who has blessed us with every blessing, and you are our soul's satisfaction and you've given us all freedom except for one rule. They don't do that. What do they do? They hide. They hide. And Adam, and God says, what, where are you? And what does Adam say? He says, oh, we heard the sound of you in the garden and we were afraid and we hid. So this, we see this, as God is using these people to do what Adam and Eve couldn't do to restart creation, we see the same thing playing out, don't we? We see the same thing playing out. They have gone from a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19, a kingdom of priests, I'm gonna make you a kingdom of priests, to a kingdom with priests. That's John Selhammer as well. All the washing in verse 11, which we skipped, that's about the, the anointing and all the clothing and the washing, all the clothing. The priests are covered. Those who go into God's presence, they have to wash and wash and wash and be covered head to toe. They even have hats and shoes and a certain type of clothing and everything and covering like armor so that they can exist in God's presence. Head to toe, they're covered. All the sacrifices of innocence that have to happen so the guilty can go into God's presence, Um, Aaron's sons in verse 14 it says they are clothed with tunics these same two Hebrew words are used first in the Bible guess where in Genesis 3 verse 21 of God clothing Adam and Eve with animal skins right after they've sinned a sacrifice is needed the death of an innocent something that doesn't deserve to die is necessary for them to be covered in their sin so that God can actually be with them and not see their sin Okay, it's the same phrase used. The only two other places these words are used together between Genesis three and Exodus forty. Okay, right here, that's it. This is the next instance. Um, Both describe the same act—that of putting priestly coats on Aaron's sons. So Exodus twenty-nine, verse five and eight are the only two other instances these are used, and they're they're described. They're using it's it's used to describe the priests being covered to go into God's presence. Okay, so we're seeing a recreative act, but it's failing already from inception. Um, most obviously, to get to the point that I started with in this verse, in this, uh, verse, uh, in this uh, point, most obviously and perhaps ominously, even Moses in verse 35 can't enter. The man. This is how the book ends, y'all. This is how the book ends. Um, he cannot, uh, he, and where is he, okay, the, where's the entrance on the tabernacle? What side? It's on the east side. It's where the tribe of Judah, by the way, was lined up. He's on the east side, presumably waiting, not, wanting to enter, not able to enter. What side were Adam and Eve kicked out of, of the garden? East, east of Eden, Genesis three, okay? Um, God's presence and man have become incompatible owing to sin. There are so many divides in this tabernacle architecture, okay? Between God and man, between the priests and God, lest they die. Um, So the ending of this book foreshadows the ending. I said I'd zoom out. This is how Exodus ends. Glory, but disappointing. And it tells us a lot about what's going on in the larger narrative of scripture. Adam, Israel, failure. But also it's how the first block of scripture ends. Okay? Um, In the Torah, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses, what? Not only can he not here enter into the tabernacle, but what happens at the end of Deuteronomy? He can't enter into the, promised land. What a disappointment. Moses cannot enter into the promised land. He sings a song at the very end of Torah, um, Genesis 32 and 33. This is called the song of Moses by many. And it's basically a song of how God's faithful, but Israel is unfaithful. And as soon as Moses leaves, they're going to start turning and they already have turned. And what, and what we, they deserve, what we deserve is God's judgment and how they are an unfaithful people. So it's a kind of a downer. Um, also, so let me just say this. And then I'll conclude this point. One of the things that we see here is that Moses and Israel show us in no, in no unclear colors or uncertain terms that no matter how good the law, and the law is good, it cannot get us to God. It, the law has no power to change us. These are overused, but they work. The law is like a mirror. Man, when you look, sometimes when I get a haircut, when I was younger especially, I'd see, there's a reason they put really good looking people on the posters when you're getting haircuts and you're like, man, I'd like that haircut, please. Because you think, I will look like that person, you know? Of course, that doesn't work. It's, that's not the way it happens. It's just me with a bad haircut and I regret having looked at that poster. Um, the mirror is similar. The mirror, I look in it and it's like, man, I'd really love for this mirror to be able to change. I look. It, doesn't, it doesn't work. The mirror can't do anything but show you what you look like, your scars, your when I was when I was a middle uh, middle school and high school, my pimples, um, you know, all the stuff, all the imperfections on my face. Okay, good or bad, it shows us. It does has no power to change us. Another another, another overused illustration: the law is it's good and it's straight, and up against its straightness, we see our crookedness. It can't can't make us straight, right? So this ending of chapter 40 is a disappointment. Moses can't enter. Um, It presages the ending of the first block of scripture, the Torah, but it also presages the ending of the entire Old Testament. Because how does the Old Testament end? If you look at the end of 2 Kings, if you look at the end of 2 Chronicles, if you look at Malachi, the last prophet, the Old Testament ends with God's people, they are sent back, but basically it ends with, they're in exile. If you look at Kings and Chronicles, the people are in exile and there's a remnant that's sent back. God is faithful, but they're kind of in shambles because of their disobedience. They're kind of in shambles and yet God is still working. And then Malachi, the last prophet, the second to last verse, third to last verse, 4-4, Malachi 4-4, remember Moses and my laws I gave him. How did that work out? That you couldn't keep and broke with astonishing speed. That isn't in there, but that's my that's my little insertion. And then the last verse and the last prophet ends this way, the last bit of the Old Testament, four six, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there's a promise there right before that, but it's terrifying, okay? The law cannot save us. The one who brings us the law as the intermediary through God, Moses, he can't even enter, and he can't even enter the promised land. And after that terrifying line, what do the people get? Four centuries of silence, okay? Um, Adam failed. Okay, let me crystallize this and bring it, wrap it up. Adam failed, Israel failed. Um, The law can't get us to God, Good behavior cannot get us to God or put us in his presence with peace. This Exodus ending foreshadows that failure, but one is coming who will not fail. That is what all of this is throwing us forward to, as often alluded to earlier. I just want to get to Jesus, okay? Well, guess what? Congratulations, you're here. Point three, point three the walking tabernacle and the law of liberty, okay? Okay. Um, now we look at the Old Testament, we spend time there, we look at a tabernacle thing like this, we get a review like the one I've given to us. We know the law can't save us. We know how much code there is, the covenant code, the priestly code, the, uh, the holiness code and on and on it goes. Um, it's a strict law code. A lot of times when Jesus comes on the scene, we think about Jesus as just kind of saying, meh and moving the law aside. Disturbingly, that's the opposite of what he does. Does Jesus loosen the requirements? Quite the opposite. He comes and preaches this sermon in Matthew. Matthew presents Jesus as being born, growing up as a man, being tested in the wilderness. Then he comes on the scene. And the first thing basically that he does uh, in Matthew is he comes and he preaches this sermon on a mountain. And he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Don't get too excited. Get excited, but not for that reason. He says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, okay? For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a jot or a tittle, basically, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the teachers, right, of the law, the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to illustrate this and he gives these terrifying illustrations of not a new law, but of what the law really is in the Old Testament. He says, hey, you've heard it said, um, don't murder. And you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, check, I'm not a murderer. I'm still good with God like I still have a chance. He said, "No, murder starts in the heart. If you've hated anyone from your heart, listen to me. This is Jesus. This is Jesus who fulfills the law and tells us exactly what it's telling us. He says, "If you've hated anyone from your heart, I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but I will about a zillion times. You 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 essentially are a murderer. That's where murder starts." It starts in the heart. So what is he doing? He's driving. He's saying the law is driving us to our heart to see there is a heart problem. He does the same thing with lust. He said, oh, maybe you, God hates adultery. The law says don't, don't commit adultery. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you haven't. If you haven't, you might be proud about that. He says, actually, if you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart, uh-oh, you have committed adultery. The law is about the heart. The law shows us, it's the straight edge. It's the mirror. It shows us exactly what we're like. Even though it's good, it shows us what? It's good, but it shows us that we are we're bad. We're corrupt in and of ourselves. But Jesus isn't gonna relax the law at all. James, in the book of James, Jesus' half-brother, he says, if you break the law in one point, What? You break all of it. You're guilty of all. It's like a spider's web. I've used this illustration before. The law is like a spider's web because it comes from one source, God Almighty, and it's all connected. If you touch one part of a spider's web, what happens? The whole thing shakes, okay? And it comes from one God who is all, God is united in his being. He's a simple, this is a theological term, but he's simple in that he is undivided. Three in person, but one. Echad, the Lord your God, the Lord is echad. He's one. He's one God. There's only one God. And when that one and united God, when we break one of his perfect commands, all of him, not a part of him, there is no part, all of him is offended infinitely. That's terrifying. But that's the message of the Old Testament in part. But it's whispering to us and times shouting to us, wait, there's one who's coming, right? Um, So, but more than that, it gets even worse. But don't worry, it's about to get better. The law doesn't just show us our sin, it actually provokes our sin. That's something that Paul majors on when he gets to the New Testament letters. Jack Deere in a book called Even in Our Darkness, which don't read it unless you really wanna get down and dirty, it's a serious expose of his own life. But he says in this book, he says, it never occurred to me to put gravel, he's talking about when he was a teenager, in a car gas tank until someone told me not to. And you know where that's going. So he did it. He did it. And that's the what law does. It provokes, there's something in us. It's not the law. The law is good. There's something in us that it, it, it provokes in us the evil. Okay. But here's the thing. Jesus came to fulfill the law for us. Galatians 4, 5. I wish I had more time to unpack this. I don't. So let me just say, Galatians 4, 5 says this. Jesus was born under the law. You ever thought about that phrase? He didn't have to be born under the law. He was born under the law and he came obeying the law, not just ostensibly on the surface, from the heart, with delight, obeying his good father. All right, He was born under the law, why? To redeem you, to redeem me, to redeem those who were under the law. We can't keep it. It provokes our sin. It shows us our black hearts. He was born under it to keep it, to redeem us. And that word, that word is an accounting word. It means to buy us back with the price of what his own obedience and his own death. Wow. Mike Kruger, one of my New Testament profs, I've quoted this before, but he says he makes the salient and wonderful point and true point that our salvation depends when we think when I say Christ saved you, what do you think of? And what should you think of immediately? Please get this one right. Yeah, I saw someone whisper at the cross, right? I know you're used to saying Jesus, but this one actually requires a little more specificity, right? Uh, the cross, when we think of our salvation, we think of the cross and rightly should we. But that was where Jesus became, a, not became, took the place of a lawbreaker for us. He carried and actually became our sin and nailed it to the cross and buried it. But actually our, sal- our salvation depends not just um, on the sins Jesus became and paid for and wiped away, but listen to this but on the law that he kept from the heart. Your salvation and mine depended on, this is what Mike zeroes in on, it's so helpful to me. Your salvation, friend, if you've trusted in Christ, or if today you say, yes! yes, I cannot keep the law. I cannot get to God on my own. I need a savior and his name is Jesus. If that's you, if you've said it, if you're saying it today, if you're gonna say it in the future and please don't let it be the future, please come to the cross now. If that's you, your salvation hung and depended on every act of obedience, things done and things that he shouldn't have done, not done from the heart by Jesus. Every word spoken, every word not spoken. If there had been sin in any part of his life, we would be lost. Lost. So he fulfills the law for us. He didn't just pay for law uh, breaking in our place. He kept the law in your place. Does that not, when that penny drops and you believe on that today and you believe on that again today or for the first time, does that not, can you not feel a weight off your shoulders? Friend, Law keeping is not up to you. He has done it. He has finished it. You don't have to, because of that, if you're in Christ, you don't have to keep the law anymore. You get to. And so much of the law was simply to point to him. It is now finished. And the law that we had to keep, he kept in our place. So now we're freed to. And we're made children and not slaves. We're put in a new position with him. It's no longer something we have to keep. It's been kept for us. It's something because we've been given a new disposition by his Holy Spirit and a new heart. It's something that we actually want to keep because we don't have to do it anymore. And he's made us friends of God. It no longer hangs over us, okay? And when we don't feel that desire, we can just ask for it as his children and he'll give it to us because he's given us all things, Right? Um, Recall the complexities of the law that I talked about, how that was a sign that bad kids get more rules. They got more and more complex, right? Um, To show that the people were less trusted, trustworthy, more under bondage. Then you look at, you don't have to turn there, John 13 is Jesus talking. He's starting the long monologue almost, dialogue to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another, By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Having heard what I've been trying to articulate and unpack, what does this tell us? It tells us a lot of things, but what does it tell us? It tells us that we've been moved to a place of trust where Jesus says, love, love each other. There aren't all these rules anymore. Love each other as I've loved you with the love that I have for you. It's in your heart. I'm reigning in heaven now. I will be soon. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to rise from the dead and leave death in the ground. I'm going to rise, ascended, in control of all things and I have all authority and yes, I will give you my spirit. So just love each other. This is a stamp of trust from God the Father saying you're liberated, you're free, go get after it. Isn't that good? compared to all the burden of the law that came before. So in keeping the law for us, Jesus brought us back to God. How? By being the person God's people never were and that we never were, yes. But also, again, to sort of pick up on the text from this morning, by being a better priest than Aaron and his sons were, they were covered head to toe in things that protected them, as it were, from God. Jesus is sinless and he comes before God as he is and he presents us to God as he is and then he takes our sin onto himself. They had to make sacrifices continually day and night for themselves and others. He didn't sacrifice for himself. He offered the sacrifice of himself. This is all in Hebrews four and seven. He offered the sacrifice once and for all and finished the work. And because it was once, the author of Hebrews tells us, there's nothing more required. And we know that because he was raised from the dead. The resurrection is the vindication of Christ and it's the father saying, payment sufficient, bill paid. And I could name every single one of you that I know have looked to Christ and say, payment made for you. That's what Jesus did for you. That's his love for you. I don't care what you've done in your past or what you're going through now. He's paid it. And the power to keep walking out in freedom, it's in him. It's in abiding in him. And he loves you. He's not gonna love you less when you go out of here and do something and stumble and fall and sin against him. Don't do that. Not encouraging you to do that. Go live a life of freedom and obedience because he's trustworthy. But when you do and you will and I will, he loves you not one scintilla less because it's been paid for and you're free. Okay, that's that's the gospel. And he is a much more sufficient high priest than they. But also guys, and you probably, hopefully you sense this, he wasn't just a better priest, he was the better tabernacle. He was the better meeting place between God and man. Who but the God-man to be the place where God and man meet, the nexus point. John 1, 14, John starts out his book by saying, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What is that Greek word? The word word is Jesus. He became flesh. Literally like he he became skin and bones is the connotation in the Greek given there. He became skin and bones. Really? Why? He dwelt among us. That word dwelt is he tabernacled. It's It's the same word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He, he is the one who brings us to God. He is the meeting place between God and man, okay, where we meet with God in peace. So he's the sacrifice, he's the better priest, he's the better tabernacle temple. Um, Jesus said in John two nineteen, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again, all right? And um, as we wind down, I just wanna um, say, we're gonna go to 1 Peter 2 um, and then I'm gonna close this out in Revelation. But as, as, as this better dwelling place um, he makes us, we in him, better tabernacles and priests. Let me read you First Peter 2, 14, okay? We're like little Christs going out from here because of what he's done. As you come to him, Peter says, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Have you been rejected by men? Have you been rejected by men because of your faith? Have you been scorned and have had people's noses turned up at you or felt some disdain? What does Peter say? To God, you're what? Chosen and And precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Recall how he moved Israel from a kingdom of priests to a kingdom with priests? Not anymore. Not anymore. Christ has done it, and he has done what was supposed to happen through Adam. I say supposed to, God in his sovereignty. Okay, he's done all things well, and he knew what was gonna happen, and he ordained all things, even through our sin and evil and rebellion. But what Adam couldn't do, what Israel couldn't do, Jesus did, and now he is making of us a kingdom of priests, tabernacles, a place where God dwells, okay? So that gives us a mission, and the mission is the message, First Peter 2, 9. He says, but you are a chosen race. This is Israel language, listen to this. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is Jew and Gentile, friend. A people for his own possession. Listen, that you may, what's the purpose of our existence? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our mission is a message that we might proclaim what? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, made me, make me never more ashamed. I am ashamed, God forgive me, of the message of the gospel to my neighbors, to people I meet, to people that I think don't like me, to people that I think like me. Lord, make Jesus the name of Jesus sweet on our lips. Make us a people who proclaim your excellencies. Okay, but check this out. Did you catch that new creational language in there? He says, he, says, he who called you, what? Out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's, that's Peter purposefully taking Jews who would have read this, Gentiles, back to Genesis and using creation language. Okay, and saying that in the face of Jesus Christ, we see the light of the glory of God. He, he is doing a new creative work through Jesus, okay? He's doing a new creative work. So what am I saying? Simply this, this whole sermon down to this funnel point, your salvation friend, I think, I hope that, and I know, I hope it will happen here, but I know that in this part of the world, this is a huge misconception about the gospel. Your salvation is not merely, is not merely being saved from your sins. Notice I said the word merely. It is being saved from your sins. But what are we learning from this text as we take it to Jesus? Your salvation, friend, is a new creation. It's a new creation event through Christ, as big of a deal as the first creation in Genesis 1 and 2, and a bigger deal. Because this time, no no one's gonna stop it. No Adam, no Israel, okay? And he is with us always, yay, even until the end, okay? So let me finish with a text, a short text from Revelation. I had to steal this and tack it on the end because we were at a conference, a few of us, uh, I, I want more of you at the conference next year. It's in Oklahoma City. It's called Convergence. And this weekend we were at it. Um, and one of the speakers called Andrew Wilson, he's a, he's a Brit, he's English. And he, um, he spoke And he talks about this, so Revelation 22 is talking about this new creation and what it's gonna look like. And I'm not gonna read the text in the interest of time, but it's Revelation 22 1 through five. And he makes two points about the text that I wanna leave us with, okay? That I wanna leave leave us with as I close. And it is that he said, my wife and I were at, and he used the word posh, we were at a posh wedding. Um, Fancy. These people had a lot of money and they were friends. And it was a wonderful party, but it was posh. It was high class. He's like, we're not too high class, but it was really fun. A lot of good food and ice sculptures and all the whole, the whole nine yards. Big, big, uh, large grounds as you would have and as you would expect in England, uh, large grounds. And he said, so we were on our best behavior and my wife had to use the restroom. And so she, you know, the, these restrooms, it was a pane of glass, but it was frosted glass. You know, in restrooms, you have frosted glass if it's glass looking out on the outside world. So it's frosted glass and, and you, you can see through it, but just dimly. And uh, it protects you for doing things in the restroom and protects people from you seeing, them seeing you. And so she went in and, and she used the restroom and she was just, you know, all at the loo, as it were, uh, reflecting as you do, ruminating perhaps. And she looked out and she saw all the stuff going on in perfect clarity. And she was like, wow, that's really cool. And then all of a sudden it hit her with a shock. They can probably see me too. She was literally on the toilet. And, and so Raj, she's realizing this one of the, I think the host the groom jumps in front of the, everyone's kind of looking at her and he jumps in front of the, of the window, you know? And uh, the fact is that it was not frosted. Okay. It was not frosted. It was for some reason, he didn't give the reason. There's this door to the restroom in this house that is just clear as day. And so it was a terrifying moment. And, there, and he's telling people from pulpits in America now about it. And now I'm telling people about it. Um, Andrew Wilson's wife, I'm sure you can find her on Facebook. <laughs> um, what is his point? His point is this. His point is that Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, that wonderful chapter on love, He says, "One day, he says, one day we're going to see his face, but now we see as through a glass darkly. So even in the best of times with the Lord, in communion with him, like this morning, celebrating him or in your prayer closet or just reading his word or serving someone or being crucified in your flesh or whatever it is, you're just loving him. You're just receiving from him. You're knowing him. Paul says, it's like you're looking through frosted glass. And on the other side, he's just there, but you can barely even see his outlines. But one day he says, one day and it's coming, we're gonna see him face to face. And when we see him face to face, we're gonna be made like him. And our soul's satisfaction is gonna be made complete. All the tastes that we've been getting, it's gonna be a banquet. And the banquet, guys, it's not gonna end. And that's what um, uh, John talks about at the end of the scriptures. Think end. It's It's not a disappointing ending. It's the best ending. Why? Part of the reason is because it's just the beginning. Jesus says, the first things have passed in Revelation 21 behold, I'm making all things new. This new creation that he started, okay, we're gonna see him face to face. That's one of the things John says in Revelation 22. One of the best things about the new world we will be with him, we will be healed inside and out, body and soul. And the last thing that he, that he touches on, this is the last thing I'll have to say, is that I've always wondered about this and I wonder still, but it, part of a new creation is there's from the throne of God, there's this river, this crystal river that goes out from the throne and it waters the creation and it's making all things new and it's wonderful and there's play around it and there's life around it as, as happens around beautiful rivers. Um, but it comes out from the throne of God and on either side of the river, there's a tree. There's a tree of life and it goes back to Genesis. It's a tree that, of life that bears fruit for what? The healing of the nations, okay? And he says this, this is what I've always wondered and you might have too if you've read the end of the Bible. Why? It's so confusing that it's a tree. It's one tree, but it's on both sides of the river. And um, it goes back to Genesis where there are two trees. There's a tree of life. And then there's what? Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that tree of the knowledge of good and evil is gone. We're no longer able to send glory. That's true liberation, we wanna do what the Father says in the new heavens and the new earth. There's no more temptation. There's no more sin, okay? So that tree's gone, but it's a tree of life. But then it also, John is also taking from Ezekiel. He takes a lot from Ezekiel and Revelation. Ezekiel chapter 47 talks about trees on either side. That's easy. Trees on either side of this river that's coming out from the altar, giving life to a wasted creation, creating a garden. It's a picture of Jesus. And here we see that there's a tree. What's the deal? And I don't know if this is right, and he doesn't know, but he says, I'm thinking, here's the deal. He goes back to Luke, which I taught this morning in equipping class. Come next Sunday if you want to, although it's on baptism next Sunday. And the Sunday after that, we'll we'll be doing Acts. Um, But Luke is the author of the gospel of Luke. And he's also the author of the book of Acts. It's like part two, okay? And in the gospel of Luke, he always says the cross. He always uses the word cross for the cross. But the same author, Luke, in the book of Acts, he never uses the word cross. According to Andrew Wilson, I'm leaning on him here. What does he use? He uses the word tree. Every single time in the book of Acts, after the resurrection of Christ, after we've seen what the cross is for and what it's doing in creating a new creation in us and through us, into everything we touch, into every place we inhabit, okay? The dead wood of the Roman gibbet, the torture instrument, The cross that Christ had to carry and was pinned to like an insect for us has become a tree, a living tree of life. And from that preached cross that our God maker, redeemer, Lord, and savior died on, that becomes the sole place of life. Life that goes out from the throne of God and makes all things new. There is no other life outside of our crucified, risen, reigning, and soon to return, Jesus. That is the tree that will heal you. That is the tree that is for the healing of the nations. That's how it's going to happen. And guess what? He's doing it through you. And he's doing it in you. Amen. All right. Lord, thank you so much for the cross. Can maybe we start calling it the tree more, the wonderful and blessed tree of death that you have made a tree of life that will bear fruit for the healing of the nations and for our healing. Lord, that we might feed on it. And in feeding on it, I mean feed on you even here and now. Get glory, build your kingdom. Holy Spirit come in Jesus' name, amen.